So throughout history, deaf people uh, were called dumb. That was the term. And it was a, that term was used because it aptly applied to those people. It described them very well. There was no great method of communication. They, were, they could not be taught, and they just went around their lives, basically apart from the community. So in the Gemara, the Talmud, they are categorized um, as being the same as a deranged person and a minor. The term, the, there was like three terms that all went together. Cherish, Shota, Vekatan. Deaf, mute, a, an insane person, and a minor. And there's a lot of rules that apply to them. And you, know, you can even find acronyms. Cherish, Shota, Vekatan. They're just good. All put together. So the Tabernacle Chagiga is discussing the law about going up to Eretz Yisrael. Every male had an obligation to go to the temple on the three pilgrimage holidays. And the question was, um, is a cherish, a deaf mute, not obligated to go to the temple? So the Mishnah says, not obligated. The Talmud is not going to define the term. What is a cherish? So the Talmud says, the Gemara notes, we already learned this, as the sages taught in Tosefta, one who speaks but does not hear, this is a deaf person. One who hears but does not speak, this is a mute. Both this one and that one are in the same legal category as those who can see and hear with regard to all mitzvahs. So if you can do one of the two, that's good enough. One who speaks but does not hear, and one who hears but does not speak are obligated to mitzvahs. Sorry. Yeah, that's what I said earlier. The Gemara asks, is that to say that one who is not able to speak is not able to learn? But consider the following incident. There were two mute people who were in the neighborhood of Rabbi Yochanan Nasi, and they were the sons, um, and, uh, the sons and daughter of Rabbi Yochanan ben Gudgada. And some say they were the sons of the sister of Rabbi Yochanan ben Gudgada. <laughs> Whenever Rabbi Yochanan Nasi would enter the study hall, they would also enter and sit before the sages. And they would nod their heads as if they understood and move their lips. And Rabbi Yochanan Nasi prayed for God to have mercy upon them, and they were healed. And it was discovered that they had learned and were proficient in halacha, in Mishnah, Sifri, the halachic Midrash, Sifrei, and the entire Talmud. This shows that those who cannot speak are able to learn. Marzotra said that one should read into the verse that they may teach instead of that they may learn. Even if a mute person is able to learn, he cannot teach others. So, halachically, if you can do one of the two, you are not in the category of a cheresh. A cheresh needs to be able to not speak and not hear. But if you can just hear and not speak, you are obligated in mitzvahs, but not the obligation to go to the temple. Why? Because the mitzvah was to go to the temple, and you're supposed to return back to your family and relate what was said, so that they will learn and, and relate. And the word yilmadu can also be read as yilamdu with the same vowels, yilamdu to teach others. So if they cannot teach others, they're not obligated to go. But we see here the general category, which is a deaf-mute, cheresh we're going to define as deaf-mute because it has both characteristics, are not obligated in mitzvahs. That means another, another halacha is that if you um, took a torch and you handed it to a cheresh, a deaf-mute, and they lit a fire with it and burned down a house and they committed arson, the person who gave them that torch would be liable to pay. It's as if you gave it to a child or you gave it to a, an insane person, someone who's deranged. You are obligated because they are not you know, considered to have any uh, you know, ability to choose Why any conscious choice. There's no, me- uh, no mental issues. It's just that they can't, one can't hear and one can't speak. Exactly. But at the time, there was no way to communicate with them. And you could not teach them. From the moment they were born, basically did not tell them anything. You didn't teach them anything. And they grew up just being shunned, shunted to the side. And they were just expected to be in that category for the rest of their lives. And it took a long time to change this. Um... In, I think, 650, there was a Christian saint who, you know, in order to be a saint, you have to commit a, you have to do a miracle to be sainted. And his miracle was that he uh, healed a, a deaf mute and got them to be able to speak. Not hear, but speak. But that was the miracle, that they were able to speak. Till then, I mean, if they were deaf, they were not talking, almost, unless they had been born hearing and then lost their hearing. They were just not going to learn to talk. That was just it. And that was the end. So the Rambam talks about what happens if they marry somebody. 
Someone who's deaf, mute, marries. So the Rama, laws of divorce, says, if a man marries while in possession of all faculties and later became a deaf mute, or needless to say, insane, he can never give a divorce until he is well again. Because divorce requires you know, conscious thought, the ability to choose. And if you lose your mental faculties, that is impossible. We may not rely on the gesture or the writing of a deaf mute, even if his mind is completely intact. If, however, he married as a deaf mute, he may give a divorce by a gesture. That means that if he was a deaf mute before his marriage, then his marriage never had real halachic binding. We just allowed them to live together. So since he was never a real marriage in the first place halachically, therefore it can be annulled through a gesture as well. Now this is a very interesting halacha here um, because this is the opposite of what we try to do often. We usually try to allow people out of marriages. This is the no way out situation. And there was um, a lot of debates about people who at one point seemed normal and then later seemed insane. And what do you do then? There was, in fact, a huge argument about a different get which tore apart communities where one rabbi, there was marriage, and then, you know, she wanted to get a divorce, and, you know, he was claiming to be insane, so a rabbi came, insane, and then they went to a different town, rabbi said, not insane, and next town, insane, and it just became this huge battle where each rabbi was writing you know, vehement rhetoric about other rabbis and how they they don't use proper judgment. And um, this was the same couple, like going to different towns and just like. Um, well, basically, yes, there were. Rabbi One puts out like a, a public response that this I have I checked and this marriage is never going to be annulled. Basically, it's it's over. She's stuck forever. And then Rabbi Two says no. Public announcement. I have figured out that it, it's not over. I have annulled it because he was, you know, I checked and whatever method I used to ascertain how rational he was, I did the divorce. Rabbi A says, I checked and he's not. And then that Rabbi B's divorce is not valid. And then Rabbi C has to decide whether she can remarry someone else. And then it just becomes like a vortex of conflicting opinions. Um, but, I mean, that, that, you know, with deaf mute things, it didn't happen so much. There weren't so many people changing back and forth. But um, again, we see the line that's very important here is we might, must not rely on the gesture or the writing of a deaf mute, even if his mind is completely intact. This is called remiza, hinting. Why? Why can't you use the, you know, the signing or the writing of a deaf mute? It would seem that the reason that a deaf mute is not obligated in mitzvahs and their, their marriage is not binding is not because of something inherently wrong. There's no verse that says, you know, they can't get married. It's usually assumed that the problem is they don't have proper mental capacity. But here the Ramam is saying a step further that um, they just can't, really. And even if it's hinting, that's not good enough. And that was the situation for most years. Basically, born deaf, they would almost always end up mute, and then they would not be, you know, their marriage would not be, you know, valid, and their lives would basically continue outside of the community. This changed around the um, 1500s. I mean, there, there were, up until that point, uh, very, you know, I guess unsophisticated methods of communication that used grunting and pointing type of caveman language between deaf people. Even um, Plato describes, um, you know, should we, he, he uses the term, like, should we communicate like the, de- like the dumb people do with, you know, some gestures? Implying that it was some method of communication, but it was not a very effective one. And that changed around the 1500s, 1600s, where there became standardized forms of communication for letters first, and then slowly progressing into entire languages. And it became more and more possible to teach these people, to show them you know, how to communicate with each other and, in fact, with, with other people. So at this point, around the 1600s and the 1700s, there began to be rabbis who gained this question of like, well, in the past, this really hasn't been a question because the deaf mute people have been exactly as the Talmud describes them. 
you know, incapable of, of anything. But now they're becoming part of the communities, and the questions are still are coming up again. And what did they use to teach them with? Um, so if they can gain a measure of, of you know, a basic sign language, even the letters, then they can learn you know, to write, and then they'll be able to communicate like that. And then you can, I mean, I'm not sure exactly when. Braille's for blind people. This was for deaf people. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, the the process of teaching them to speak. I don't know firsthand. I didn't really see any like you know information, but I I understand that it's something like you have to show them how to position their mouth properly and and the way that the sound comes out, and it's like a very grueling process of more air, less air, widen the mouth, mm-hmm. where we kind of can get a feedback automatically if we were saying it incorrectly. If the sound is not correct, they need a lot more coaching. Um, but I don't know if that was the case, if they were actually you know, speaking in the 1600s. I'm not sure when that started. But anyway, this rabbi, um, the Devri Chaim, he, was, uh, he got a question. So the question was, those who are born deaf from their mother's womb, neither able to hear nor speak, you know, usually automatically not able to speak, not physically unable. So then they go to a specific school called the Tabstuman Shul, the school for deaf and mute. And they learn Hebrew and German, language and script. And when they graduate from there, they know how to pray, and they understand German fluently, and they are educated, knowledgeable in the laws and practices of the religion, and understand what's being spoken to them almost fully by lip reading. And they also speak in an inarticulate way, extremely difficult at times to understand. So at this point, I guess he was already, they were already teaching them to speak, but it's very hard to get the pronunciation correctly. But they're able to speak in such a way that the listener knows and understands what they're saying and what they're asking for. The question now before us for halacha and for practical application is to ter- determine what is their status regarding marriage, divorce, chalitza, ritual slaughtering, testimony, business transactions, and similar matters. Should we say that even after the course of their study, they should still be in the category of cherishim, regarding whom the rabbi said that we have established that they are not people of intellect? Or should we say that even though they are deaf and cannot hear, but they can speak in an inarticulate way. And if it's difficult, nevertheless, we can know and understand through the speech what they are saying and what they are asking for and requesting. And we also see that they have intelligence and know the ways of the world, and they practically have understanding and wisdom. Therefore, this matter requires investigation, both as a matter of halacha and also for practical application. For today, a person who came from this uh, school, and we see he has all these abilities, he's standing before us requesting to marry a woman who is a pikhid. She has She doesn't have any of these issues. And the question is determined is what is his legal standing? Can he marry that woman? So the rabbi, you know, he talks a little bit about the Talmudic background, and he says, therefore, according to the conclusion of the Gemara in Gittin, according to the rabbis who argue on Rabbi Shingolil, it does not help, even for those who are very sharp and intelligent and know a great deal. And even his ability to communicate through writing doesn't help. A get from him is not a get at all. And this is true even for someone who was hearing and became deaf later in life. If they are deaf, we do not rely on their writing, which means that it's not about intelligence, seemingly according to the, the, this, this opinion. However, in our case, if they could speak a little, even if only inarticulately, would, seem, would be in the category of one who speaks, in a similar way as the Hamarit wrote. In such a case, it would seem to be, my humble opinion, that they are like pikrim, you know, people who have mental capacity, and they have full legal status. The fact that they cannot hear is not a concern. As the Ramam writes, that we know through medical science it's not possible to speak without being able to hear, and therefore if they can speak, it stands to reason that they can hear somewhat, and this would suffice to categorize them as a person who can speak and hear. But regardless, a person who can hear and not speak, and a person who can speak and not hear, are both like Pikrim. Now here we see his 1600 um, understanding of how he would be able to teach somebody to speak. Mm-hmm. He says it must be that they could hear something, because if they couldn't hear anything, there's no way they'd be able to speak. Yeah, I don't know if that's true, but sure. Yes, it's probably not true. But it's interesting that he brings it up because then he ends with the important line, which is it makes no difference. If you can do one of the two, you're good. Mm-hmm. So here we have people who can communicate and they can lip read and they're perfectly intelligent and we know that they're in there, but um, their speech is garbled. He says, if that's, that's enough, if they can speak in any capacity, they are fully mentally there and they're going to be obligated in mitzvahs and their get is going to be a get, and their marriage is going to be a marriage. And this is a, a change, one of the first people who brings up this change. But he does require them to be able to communicate through speech, somewhat. He doesn't just say, we're going to ignore basically what the Talmud says, because 
you know, they have the intelligence. And that is essentially what happens. You'll see if the next source says the same thing, essentially. This one is from um, the Mincha Shlom. It's a little bit long, so we're going to skip around a little bit. But um, He says, logically, it's difficult to say that a cherish who is fully intellectually able and very perceptive, that his intellect is weak and incomplete. And it's difficult for us to understand where Chazal learned to exempt him from mitzvahs and to invalidate him from the status of Ish, a man, without making any derivation from a verse or from halacha. Here, the, the, the essential problem. There's no source. There's no section from the Torah. Nowhere in the Gemara is there even like a, uh, a back and forth. Is there a, 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 a pasuk that's quoted? It's just taken automatically. A cherish, someone who cannot speak and cannot hear, is not obligated in mitzvahs. The question is, where is the source? If the source is halacha l'moshim Sinai, if it's just Moses came down with this information, then basically nothing we say will change it. If, if we discover that they are perfectly intellectually capable, then it makes no difference. Because the reason is not because they don't think, it's just God said. But if their reasoning was just a practical one, just we look around and we see that they don't have the ability to, to think properly, then we know that that's no longer the case, at least. So which is it? But he says, since this is undoubtedly the truth, this is the halacha, we are obligated to say that Chazal knew in their great wisdom that a cherish who cannot speak and hear is a type of person whom it's impossible to see him as responsible for his actions. And therefore, we do not give significance to his acts, even if, according to our understanding, he is smart and intelligent. And all his actions are done with reason and full understanding and logic. He's not responsible. It's so strong and true that we would say it regarding a Noahide. For as we have said, we have not found any distinction in the definitions of a man between a Jew and a Noahide in cases of a cherish and Shotep, a person who is either deaf or um, deranged. Therefore, it appears in my humble opinion that in our case, the only discussion is regarding one matter to it. If this person who is taught to speak with the movement of the lips, if he is considered to be a speaking person or not. Is he speaking or is he copying speaking? Well, this is a very fine distinction here. He's making the correct sounds, but is that considered speaking if he is not even aware of what's really happening? So the Maharam Shik said that it's like somebody who is mimicking. It's it's almost like if you you taught a parrot to speak, where the speech is not indicative of anything because they're not even aware of what the sounds that they're making. It's It's not indicative of intelligence, really, because they don't even know what they're saying. You can train them to say any sounds. But um, this opinion, the Maram Shik's opinion, is a minority opinion. They say that He says that if they're just speaking without being able to hear, it's just mimicking speech. But the Mincha Shlomo says, no, that's actually not the case. I disagree. And I, uh, I believe that he's acting in his own intelligence. And I found the Shulchan Aruch that in our days, he is exa- definitely exhibiting his own intellect and not that of the one who taught him. Therefore, it seems my humble opinion that if he speaks in such a manner that an average person can understand his intent, even if his movement of his lips is different from all other people, nevertheless, it makes sense that he is rightly considered to be a speaking person who cannot hear, who has the status of a person of sound mind for all matters. However, if only people who are accustomed to speak with him can understand his intentions and others cannot, in such a case, I do not know how to decide whether he's considered like a speaking person or not. And here's the, the issue, the wall, which is that there's not enough information in the Talmud. The reasoning is not there. If they said, a cherish is not obligated in mitzvahs because he cannot think, then we would know that it does not apply. And in fact, that's actually the implication of the categories they put him in. They, they categorize the cherish, the deaf-mute, with the shota, the deranged person, and a minor, which would imply that the problem is the intellect. But on the other hand, we have statements like, if they write, it's not good enough. If they hint, it's not good enough, even though we can see what they're doing. So we're left with this unfortunate issue, is that we need them to be able to speak somewhat. If they can't speak somewhat, then we don't have enough grounds to so exempt them. So speech has to include sound, like sign language wouldn't be considered? And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. What about sign language? Right. Now, 
the Talmud does talk about remiza, hinting. That's clearly not considered to be speech. It's more of the point and grunt. The question is, what about a complex language that has accents, that has forms, that has emotions and expressiveness and all sorts of different things? What about that? That's interesting. I saw a, a, like this little documentary thing interviewing deaf people, and apparently um, in the deaf community, they kind of consider speaking people to be more like emotionally like limited or something because there's not as much expressiveness with verbal communication as there is in sign language. So in some ways, they almost think we have the weaker language exactly. skills. So I'm like... <laughs> and interestingly enough, in, in the 70s, they came out with the cochlear implants which they implant something that mm-hmm. goes directly to the nerve, the cochlear nerve, and allows a large percentage of, of deaf people to hear somewhat. The hearing is never as good, especially if you get it the wrong ages. Um, and there was a lot of pushback from the deaf community. He said this is acting as if there was a problem to be solved. And in fact, we have a culture that's in many ways more rich than the, the speaking world. And we, you know, when you give these to children, you, you take that away from them. And you are deciding for them what they should be. When we have a perfectly good, in fact, they would argue better option, to be a non-hearer, at least. Well, we had um, um, a, a deaf child belong to our show. And uh, so we had a, they had a, uh, you know, when those people that come in and, and do the sign language and during the service so that she could understand it was just for her because she was the only deaf person in the mm-hmm. in the room. And um, I don't know, to me, it, it, it seems like as long as she knew what was going on, and she and she went up uh, to the Bima to open the, the R, because I, I went up too, and um, so we were up there together, and she, you know, she was, she, she just, Looked like she knew what she, I, could, I didn't know she was even the I didn't know she was the, the deaf one, you know. And I started mm-hmm. to tell her, and uh, uh, but she but she looked at me like she understood what I was saying, but um, but you know it 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 to me it just like she was just like any normal person, uh, just because she had that uh, the the hearing person there. I mean the the other person who's doing the sign language for her, but yet she seems to be able to read lips kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, you know, uh, because she seemed to know what I was saying, mm-hmm. and um, you know about opening the door and stuff like that, and and um, I don't know. I just I just thought it was very interesting. My first time around a person, yeah, like that. And they're incredible at it, incredibly proficient, and it's almost like a, a give and a take where they can communicate with somebody across a crowded room, a noisy room, mm-hmm. um, in a way that we cannot. They also can't hear peripherally, they can't, you know, speak peripherally the way we can, mm-hmm. um, but that's the two sides. But in terms of intellect, it's very clear and obvious that there's definitely nothing missing. Um, and the struggle is that we just, the Talmud doesn't seem to leave room here for that. It doesn't seem to leave room for that dr- drastic change to say that, you know, everything's fine. So children who are uh, born into religious families who are deaf will be given some training into how to speak a little bit, at least, to cover the bases, at least. Um, because otherwise, you have halakhic questions. Now that it's it's very possible nowadays to to teach them, it's still annoying. I mean, and some deaf people said it's 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 a waste of time. Meaning you, you're you're never you're go- that's the, that it will give you away right away. You know that you'll you'll be seen as as deaf when you start speaking, and it's you know takes a long time. It's a lot of effort when you could be studying all sorts of other things and you have a whole world that's already open to you. Um, but at least in the halakhic perspective, it's, it's essential. It's very important. So that person can't be a bar mitzvah either. A, 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 a boy, um, the boy can't be, ever be a bar mitzvah. If he cannot speak. Uh-huh. If he cannot speak, he would not be obligated in a mitzvah. So he could not read from the Torah. Mm-hmm. He could not be a chazan. could not lead the services. You could make a bar mitzvah ceremony for him, but he's not really bar mitzvah in the sense that he never gained obligation in the commandments. Even, yeah. Even though he may have had a person with sign language who could exactly. teach them. Exactly. Yes. 
there is an, a requirement for speech in halacha, whose reasoning is not clear. Yeah. Now this was a person, a, a continuation of the same response from the Michal Shlomo, um, about a person whose speech was, again, inarticulate. He could speak, but in an articulate way. So they teach him to speak by moving lips. And he was asked certain years ago about this. And his response was that if they can speak even inarticulately, that's good enough. They can give some form of speech. But the question was, what about receiving the Leah to the Torah? They can speak inarticulately. So they have the obligation of mitzvahs, but could they be called to the Torah? And he said, no, that's not good enough because he can't make the blessings in a fit fashion. And the blessings are uh, in some way also for the rest of the congregation. So to be able to say them clearly. Can I ask a question? Yeah. What about somebody who stutters? That's the same, same application? Same problem. Same problem. This, uh, yeah. They cannot be a chazan if their stutter is severe. So, as for what the Maram Shik wrote, that the deaf mute has no native intelligence and his only knowledge comes from those that who have taught him, behold, we see with our own eyes that in our days that such is not the case. There are smart and intelligent people among them. There are those who are more intelligent than their teachers. Therefore, the position of the base small that you cited makes more sense that they are indeed considered to be obligated in mitzvahs. So, the bottom line is that regarding a cherish, it's extremely difficult to make a decision in a matter that the Torah giants, whose waters drink, have already analyzed at great length. But it's also extremely difficult to push them away, God forbid, for fulfilling mitzvahs. So therefore, if they cannot speak, we, we, no Rav is able to say they're still obligated in mitzvahs. But it's extremely difficult to push them away. So then this like in-between system comes where you can't do anything that will allow others to fulfill mitzvahs. You can't do anything to fulfill mitzvahs for other people, but you can do everything yourself. So you couldn't read the Torah, but you, you know, should still come to synagogue and listen. Mm-hmm. You can't lead the services, but you still should come and pray. And this balancing act of, of trying to make the Talmud work with the reality on hand. The last one, is from Rav Moshe Feinstein. It's a letter that he wrote to his son-in-law, Rav Moshe Tandler. Rav Moshe Tandler wrote a book um, on medical questions in halacha. And he wrote, it's difficult to compose a tshuva regarding halacha right now because of my weak health and God should compassion on me together with all the other ill people in Israel. Nevertheless, because the importance of this topic that you have claimed affects many of our brothers among the children of Israel, God should send them a full healing. I have gathered the strength and said the following words, which should be written down and published as a response on my name. What I am saying now is built on what you have written in my name a year ago. Who is considered to be a true cherish, and who is considered to be someone who can speak but not hear? The definition of the status of deaf-muteness for matters of halacha is not dependent on intellect or on the ability to understand what's being spoken. It's rather a scriptural edict. And it's not dependent on the ability of the cherish to understand. So he says that when the Talmud says that a cherish is like a, a minor or a deranged person, it's not because of intellect. It's just a, a reasonless command. So they can't even come up and tie the thing on the Torah either? I thought you could. There's no mitzvah there. It's just a, oh, you know, something we do. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. As is known, a cherish who can truly speak, that is to say, who can speak words that are easily intelligible, is not considered to have the legal status of a cherish. But a cherish who cannot speak words which are intelligible to most people is considered to be a cherish even if he can talk with his hands or through writing. But, number two, a cherish must strive to fulfill the mitzvah. Even a cherish who is legally considered to be a cherish should strive to fulfill the mitzvah. It's not proper that he should exempt himself with the claim that he is legally exempt. So he says that we must understand the Talmud to be a reasonless command, because otherwise it doesn't make much sense, because we see that they're perfectly intelligent. So it must be for some other reasons that we don't know. If so, the only way out is for them to, to speak. And Ramosha Feinstein's definition of able to speak is in some ways more strict than the previous opinions. He says they have to be understandable to most people, not just to others who know them well, not just to others who have, you know, my child... You know, a few months ago, I understood everything they're saying. No one else can understand what they're saying. Because I know he's got, he's got only you know, 200 words to choose from, and I know I've heard them all a lot of times before. 
Um, this needs, you need to be able to communicate with most people. Good enough for most people. But just because you are legally exempt does not mean that you should not fulfill the mitzvahs. In fact, you should strive to fulfill them all. So that is essentially where the, the question of Chirishus ends today. There are rabbis who are tentatively trying to push it a little bit and argue that it was more, the reasoning of the Talmud was not because of a scriptural command, a from the Torah, but rather because of intellect. But um, nobody with, you know, first of all, no one has the authority today of, of previous generations, but also it's a very hard line to draw when we have clear writings from Ramosha Feinstein and Hashlomo, um, who basically set it up like this. So this seems to be where the halacha is going to remain within you know, the mainstream Orthodox community. So, so all this still holds up today? Yes. So, can, so they can't, so if they can't be, clearly speak, I could understand why you like, can't be a chazan, but mm-hmm. do they still count in like a minion, or like you couldn't even count as like one of the people's? Right. If they cannot speak at all, then you would not be able to even count them in a minion. Hmm. It would be like a minor again. And, uh, the, you know, yeah, that's but, the way it would be. But even if, the, even if they can read what's on the page? Even if they can read it. Even if they could sign it perfectly. Faster than you can. Again, the reasoning is, is not clear. In fact, there is no reason. If it was about reason, then we would just immediately say it's fine. They have a perfect method of communication. But the problem is that maybe the Talmud was saying something that was reasonless because the Talmud also said that you can't, if they write it, it's not good enough either. Is it because they can't answer back when there's certain parts and then they're supposed to say something? Not really. Not really. Those are not obligatory either. I mean, if you, if you, can't, if you don't respond, it's, it still works. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to say amen, but if you don't, it's not like over. So this is the uh, the that the conundrum, yeah. Stuff if you're if you're in that yeah that condition, yeah. Yeah. It seems really crazy because like I understand. I can see why you couldn't look have them be chazan because like you need to be able to stand, understand what the chazan is saying. But mm-hmm. like to not even count an minion feels a little bit like mm-hmm. um, dehumanizing. One hundred percent. Yeah. This is the 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 problem of, of you know, trying to use history, historic halacha in today. I mean, if you were at the time, you could just ask, well, what about sign language? But they didn't have that. It wouldn't be around for thousands of years. And there was just, there was no person, you know, there, were, there was no, nobody looked and saw, mm, you know, they are actually intellectually capable. No one even thought of it. It wasn't even on the table that they were really intellectually capable until later. I can understand it in a way because if you can't hear, then how can you participate in a minion? Yeah, but minion, I think, is one of the small things here. I mean, this is, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of other stuff that we're, that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Marriage is like top of the list. But they can marry. Halachically, their marriage is not considered halachic marriage. They don't need a divorce. If they became deaf-mute during the time, they also can't divorce. This is the other problem, is that the Talmud also says, if they became deaf-mute during, you know, they, they started off being able to speak in here and then lost that capability, they're still unable to divorce, even if they can write. Which again implies that there's something more going on intellectual. So the marriages are never written. It's kind of crazy, because, like, gets are written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So their marriage is never recognized? Their marriage is never recognized in the sense that their children would be bastards if they committed adultery. Um, if someone else married that woman, she would be married to them and not the original husband. Um, inheritance issues. I mean, basically, you would allow them to live together, but they would not be but they, if they married, married. Then they could have children who can hear and see, hear and see and talk. Yes. So I don't understand. They're being deprived of having... Well, they're not, they're not... No one's saying that they can't live together. The question is, is this how luckily considered marriage? Mm-hmm. Wait, so the children would, would be considered bastards? Or no, yeah. no. No? A, a, someone born out of wedlock is not a bastard. Oh, it's oh. only adultery. 
It's only okay, adultery. Yeah. It's only what? When adultery. adultery. Yeah. Uh, or if somebody married someone they were not able to marry. Um, you know, siblings, for example. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, an argument in the Talmud about what the definition of the term is. How strict does the prohibition of the Torah need to be for it to be considered a mamzer? Um, so that's only if, they, if, if it's adultery. If, if, if somebody's already married to somebody else and they have a child by the other person. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't so what about hearing aids? Um, it would seem like hearing aids are a pretty relatively recent question. Um, and if you want to find the halachos about hearing aids, you would need to look in questions from like the 70s, you know, responses from the 70s and stuff. But the truth is, a hearing aid is really just a very small microphone put right next to the ear. So if you want to find out the, what the halachos is about Hearing aids, you need to look back to the microphone question. So microphones were introduced to synagogues um, you know, in the 1900s, and it was a big debate. Is Can an orthodox synagogue have a microphone in it? So there were some rabbis who allowed it. They said it just projects the voice. And the Lavatcher Rebbe wrote some answers in the, in the 50s. They were quite uh, strong answers. And he said the, people, the rabbis who write about this uh, should not write about it because they don't understand the science. If you don't understand the topic, you can't write a halachic response about it. Knowledge of the, of the topic is essential. But Talmud says that Rava wanted to, to talk about, he wanted to, to learn the, the laws of um, you know, which animals can be used for a sacrifice. So he lived with a shepherd for a year. Because you know, that on-the-job training was essential to understand the animals well enough. It's a story that my teacher used to say about a rabbi who um, he was asked if a man could come and convert because he wanted to join the Maccabi League um, to play basketball. And you have a right to return if you convert. So the guy wanted to convert and uh, play basketball. So, you know... I don't know how sincere he was, whatever. He was going through the, the, the process, and he went to the rabbi and said, can he play basketball on Shabbos? And so the rabbi said, well, describe to me the situation, please. So they said, well, there's a ball, and you take it, you carry it across this court, and you put it in the net. And that's, that's the game, pretty much. The rabbi thought about it, and he said, listen, if you put it in the net before Shabbos, it should be okay. You know, if you don't understand the, the question being asked, your answer is not going to be so good either. No so the rabbis with microphones, they're like, well, the voice comes in and the voice comes out, amplified, right? Perfect. And that's not what's going on. The voice doesn't come on the other side. It's transformed into electrical signals, which then are used by a speaker. So they said it's 100% forbidden to use a microphone in a synagogue. The Bob Trump was talking about dynamic microphones at the time, which used... Um, currents that alternated back and forth and actually new currents were constantly created so that form of microphone is for sure forbidden you mean as, you mean as you're talking new currents are created yeah because the sound changes the sound affects I mean there's different ways I'm not sure exactly how the yeah. dynamic microphone works but as you spoke into it it would open and close different currents of electricity and uh, there's a big debate about what the problem is electricity in general on Shabbos yeah. um, of course I asked a Georgia Power man. He said he couldn't answer my question. <laughs> Originally, they said it was, uh, yeah. You're supposed to know these things. <laughs> Originally, the rabbi said it was fire, but that's, uh, you know, put by the wayside pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, I think, four different explanations given about what the problem is. Um, either it's since electricity runs through wires and walls, it was part of construction of the building, and when you flip the switch, you are completing the, the structure of the building because it was designed to have electricity flow through it and it's considered building on Shabbos. See, then the other side that I've heard um, is that it's already built in and so when you flip the switch, you're not doing anything. Yes, this is, I think, a pretty weak already in there. argument. Yeah. In fact, it also doesn't help because, you know, maybe when it was started, all the electricity was in wires in buildings, but now it's, it's, a lot of it's not. Yeah. You know? And it seems it's going to be all wireless. Now what are you going to do? Um, so, yeah, exactly. So that explanation is, is not a good one. Mm-hmm. The second one is that it's 
um, it creates in a way something new um, either in the form of sparks excuse me or in the form of an electrified circuit itself um, this one's also not good because in a closed circuit you're not really creating anything new electricity is just flowing through it electrons are passing through which already were and now they're moving mm -hmm. and the creation of sparks is uh, hopefully not going to happen you know, that generally doesn't happen. Thus, the third one, maybe there's only three, the one that most people use today is makebepatish, the completion of a, of a vessel. Anytime you build something and you complete it, the completion is a prohibition on Shabbos. So when you close a circuit, the closing of the circuit itself is prohibited because you're completing the circuit. I mean, turning it off. Is that closing a circuit? No, closing a circuit is when, you, when it turns on. Electricity then gets to flow through it. So when you flip the switch on. Now, unclosing a circuit would be deconstructing a vessel, which would also be a problem. But both ways would be problematic. Now, this one is, is, one is the most close to what's actually going on, and it's also the most general. It includes basically every form of electricity, except for one, which is a microphone. <laughs> the way that... Most, not all, but many modern microphones work is there's two little tiny plates separated by a very, very fine amount of space. And there's electricity basically running between them. And as you speak into it, the plates vibrate. And when they vibrate, the distance between the two plates alternates and it changes the frequency of the, of the wave itself. And then the microphone picks up the alternations in the frequency and then transmits, transforms that into a code, which then gets sent down to the other side. So you don't actually open and close any circuits. Yeah, so what are you doing? Leave it on the whole time. Huh? You leave it on the whole time, right. and you're speaking into it. So the Ramosha Feinstein was speaking, was uh, among many others who addressed this issue, and he said a, a microphone is 100% forbidden on Shabbos, and it cannot be in any synagogue. And if you put it in the synagogue, you are not part of his union anymore. Oh, but you just said, if you leave it on... Mm. So what? So then what? Exactly. Because we have one. Then he wrote. Then he wrote. A deaf person said, "Can I use a hearing aid on Shabbos?" He said, "You should leave it on for before Shabbos, but you can use it on Shabbos. And if you see a person with a hearing aid, you are allowed to speak to them." So, so you have to leave the hearing aid on twenty-four hours. Or yeah, the problem is with batteries is how long yeah, it lasts. Yeah, the batteries, that's right, because the yes. batteries... So, Shlomo said that it's, it is um, also not for a deaf person themselves. They are allowed to turn it on and off. Shemir Shabbos Kachas also says that they're allowed to turn it on and off. We'll see it in later sources. Mm. But it's better that they should leave it on as long as possible from before Shabbos. But the problem is, you are not the deaf person. Can you walk over to that person and say, hello, you're speaking into a microphone? He said it's not a problem, emotion. So then he was asked, wait a minute, uh... You said that microphones definitely no. You said that hearing aids definitely yes. A microphone and a hearing aid are the exact same instrument, just in different sizes. Well, what's going on over here? So he said, Laibari isure. Its prohibition is not clear. Because, again, it's, it's not creating any circuits. The other prohibitions are not super strong, even if it's plugged in. So the prohibition of a microphone is not 100%. However, the effect on the community is 100%. Which is, the microphone might be the exception to the rule in terms of instruments that are electric that could be used on Shabbos, maybe. But if you walk into a shul and the rabbi is speaking into a microphone, what that does to the community is it gives them license to do all sorts of other things. So he said, it's not a clear prohibition. So in this scenario of a synagogue, mm -hmm. where the negative impacts are very clear, I will say in the strongest language that is forbidden, and in terms of a hearing aid, which is essential to the person to be able to function, since its prohibition is not clear, I say that it's permitted. And here we see the exact same case, literally the exact same case, exact same instrument. And the differences between the two rely entirely on context. Context. And what is the impact on others? This is where the subjectiveness of, a, of the Rav comes into play. There was once a woman who walked into a Rav, 
and she had a chicken on Friday. And she said, I just bought this chicken for Shabbos. Can you please tell me if it's kosher or not? I'm not sure. The lung, there's something going on. So the Rav looks at it and says, it's a kosher chicken. Sends her on her way. Fifteen minutes later, another woman comes in. I just got this chicken for Shabbos. You look at it. And he looks at it, and it's the exact same problem. He says, this is not a kosher chicken. He sends her on her way. And his student was right there and said, hey, you know, I, I was here for both of those. It's the same chicken. What's going on? So the Rav said, well, there is an argument about this specific scenario. If, whether this is a kosher chicken or not a kosher chicken. Most people say it's not a kosher chicken. The first woman is very poor. She's not going to buy another chicken. She's going to go home and have potato soup. The second one is rich. She's going to go right back to the market and buy another chicken. So what I respond depends on who I'm responding to. Now, there are black and white sections of halacha that don't change. But there's a whole lot of gray. And the Rav has to be able to say, what is the impact? What is the impact of this halachic response? And in electricity, you see this pretty clearly because whenever there's like four different reasons for something, it means that they were looking for reasons. If there's one reason, it's because that's the reason. If there's four reasons, it's because everyone's trying to figure out why it's forbidden. And what allowing electricity on Shabbos does is it really has a negative impact on the spirit of Shabbos itself. There's no more of an island in time. You don't get that oasis within your week when you are able to use electricity. And the rabbis were keenly aware of that. So they were looking for reasons why it should not be permitted. And when you look for reasons why it's not permitted, you can find it. I always hate it when somebody comes up and adjusts the microphone in the show. I'm saying, oh, God. And they do it all the time. Right. And nobody says anything about it. They just let them go ahead and adjust the microphone. You know, like, move it this way or move it that way so the, so the person can be heard. Maybe it's a child, and they, so they have to bend it over or do something with it. And, or maybe it's a tall person, and they have to do it the other right. way. But, yeah. So, you know, or, you know, or you can't hear it that well, so they they adjust it right there, and it's, it's never stopped. I mean, they they just they, right. They right. Well, physically moving it, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't really do anything. Let's say you have a fan that's blowing in the wrong direction mm-hmm. on Shabbos. You want to turn it to face yourself. Are you allowed to do that on Shabbos? Yeah. Now it's muktza, which means that you can only touch it for a permitted reason. What's the permitted reason? Moving it. You don't affect the circuit. You don't affect any electricity. You can move it on Shabbos. So adjusting the microphone, meaning I'm not going to say it's good to adjust the microphone on Shabbos because you probably shul shouldn't have it on Shabbos in the first place. But the actual moving of it is not a prohibition because you don't do anything that, you know, you're not changing anything in the circuitry. If you're adjusting the volume, that might be a different, a different case. But just physically moving it up and down shouldn't really be a problem on Shabbos. So... Um, now we'll see the, uh, the, the rabbis who are more clear about the issues with microphones in the last paragraph. Um, Rav Shlomo Zalman in his Tshuva Mincha Shlomo is dealing with microphones and concludes that a change in a voltage of a current isn't mylid, but still using a microphone is forbidden since it's audible and is a violation of Avshamilsa degrading the Shabbos. So he's clear. He says there's no prohibition. You're not creating new sparks, which was his reasoning. You're not opening and closing a circuit. You're not creating, you know, you're, you're not uh, doing any building situation. But it's degrading of Shabbos itself. And that itself is a problem. However, regarding hearing aids, there's this letter from the same rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman that's permitted to turn up a hearing aid on Shabbos. And there's no issue of mukta with a hearing aid that is already on. The Shemir Shabbos confirms this. The Chalkot Yaakov forbids using a hearing aid on Shabbos because he holds that connecting the circuit is biblical as it creates sparks, according to the science at the time, which is no longer the case. And he leaves it unresolved if it's permitted to use if it was already functioning before Shabbos. So, again, the, the, you know, the reasoning is here where, where we know that there's no direct prohibition. Even the way that we use electricity is, is not, is not going to be uh, applied. However, there is an issue of avshamilsa, where it just ruins the spirit of Shabbos. So could you take a television and leave it on on Shabbos? There's no halachic problem. There's nothing wrong with it. But it takes away, it takes away the spirit of Shabbos. Is that the Shabbos that we want? That's the question that every rub has to deal with. 
there's all sorts of things that could be allowed if a Rav was looking for a reason to permit them. You know, and, and if we do that, then... Can you tape a program before Shabbos begins? Yeah. <laughs> you can. <laughs> okay. What about, you know, we know that, for example, going on a subway, is it permitted on Shabbos? Well, there's no, halach, there's no reason why it's been permit, prohibited. I mean, the paying, you know, is a problem, so you have to jump the turnstile. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> the actual getting on the thing, the doors are automatic, your weight is negligible. It's not going to do anything. So as long as you don't have to pay. Right. If you were there on, before, before, you were inside the, the, the terminal before Shabbos started. Before Shabbos started. Yeah. So as long as before Shabbos started, you can ride it. Yeah. Well, there would be no halachic issue, but if you ask the Rav, can I go on a subway on Javis, mm-hmm. you know, say no. he'd say no. <laughs> what if we have a car that is, uh, you know, an automatic door car that's, you know, perfectly automated, and it, it drives itself, it drives itself oh. <laughs> and it's got a, um, a device inside that makes sure that it does not adjust its electric output for weight. Which is not great for gears, but whatever. That's what it does, let's say. Could you sit in it on shops? And then drive around? Well, you're not going to be able to find a problem with it. But it's not going to be permitted. Why? Because what it does to the Jewish community is it, it, it destroys the infrastructure of everyone having to live within walking distance of each other. One of the best things for the community and the worst thing for housing prices is the fact that you can't drive on shops. <laughs> So, a Rav who, who had this question will find something. They have to. What if we, in, we invent a new form of, of energy entirely? We figure out a way to harness gravitational pull or something. And we create essentially all the same technology, just doesn't use electricity. What's going to happen? The Rabbanim are going to say the exact same thing. They're going to say, well, I don't know, we're completing something. We're, I don't know, it's creation of, I don't know what they'll come up with exactly. But they might just fall back on the Av Shamil so that it just is not the spirit of Shabbos. Well, even if it, you know, all the stuff about wind and solar, you know, that creates electricity too. It all creates electricity, so, yeah. But, but that's a different kind of electricity. The electricity itself is the same. It's all just the same electrons passing through. Started. It's just how we generate it, yeah. Generated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can't, I mean, I can't even think of what other form of energy you'd use other than electrons, but if, even hypothetically, we, I, know, I am 100% sure that it would be forbidden. Because, you know, what would Shabbos be? Mm-hmm. So every time we have a question about, is this permitted on Shabbos, not permitted on Shabbos, another component that we have to consider ourselves is, what's this do to my Shabbos? What about, um, if, if you have somebody come over and do some work on Shabbos, but you're not paying them any money, 